Welcome to the Good Friends of Jackson Elias, a regular podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films, and horror gaming in general. I'm Paul Fricker. I'm Scott Dalwood. And I'm Matt Sanderson. And in this episode, we're talking about cats in Lovecraft and Call of Cthulhu. But first, the news. So recently, we were at Concrete Cow, the games convention that takes place in Milton Keynes twice a year. The next one taking place in September 2018. The 15th, to be precise. All right. Well, how did you get on? Was it a good con? Yeah, I think I think we fell flat of being the fact there was a lot of snow that ah. put off, put off travellers, because I know people from Manchester and London that were planning to come up couldn't make it because of the weather. And talking of snow, we did have Edwin from Skype of Cthulhu visiting Britain. Uh, and he came over and came to the con, and apparently he's from Maine, and he mocked our several inches of snow. <laughs> yeah, he said it was like June in Maine. Yeah, how dare he? <laughs> we didn't even have inches. We had, like, millimetres. Yeah. But, yeah, Edwin was accompanied by uh, another uh, Skype of Cthulhu regular, Jonathan Powell. And yeah, you, you ended up gaming with them, didn't you, Paul? Yeah. Well, I ended up with gaming with Jonathan. Oh, OK. Edwin, um, no, that's... Of course, yeah, Edwin was running D&D in the afternoon, wasn't he? Right. Mm-hmm. Yes. He played in my cult game in the morning. Aha. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was pleased to have Jonathan and other listeners to the show. I know Pookie and Pender and Chris Glue and Kiri and Ollie, who was the only person that I didn't know at the table. And it was a really nice group because everybody participated and, and were really positive, but nobody dominated the group, which often happens when you get a group of people, you know, somebody yeah. really dominant. But it was really nice. And I ran some scenario written by some guy, I don't know. It um, was shit, wasn't long it? Long hair and yeah. on this podcast. Yes, I ran Scott's intro adventure to A Poison Tree, the campaign that we're working on for Pelgrane Press. And, uh, yeah, it was good. It was fun. Ran for about three hours. Nobody really died. Somebody ended up living on a hillside, growing a long beard. And I kind of envisaged Scott. They'd they'd become the author of the scenario. Yes. Yeah, that does explain an awful lot. (laughs) I think that was Chris Glue. (laughs) You said you ended up running cult in the morning. Yes, right. yeah, I did. All about kids providing human trafficking routes across the border from Mexico to the US. Oh, nice. Yeah, in fact, okay. I think I had pretty much the same table as you had in the afternoon then, Paul. Oh, right. <laughs> yeah. Okay. You're really going for the cheery subjects there, Matt. Oh, yeah, of course. <laughs> All right. And you, Scott? Uh, yeah, I playtested uh, a new Pop Cthulhu Dreamland scenario that I'm working on called The Gate of Bone. I had originally planned to playtest two scenarios at Concrete Cow, but the second one hadn't quite come together. So I just ended up running the same one twice. And that worked. Gave me some very useful feedback. And yeah, thank you to everyone who played with me. It, it helped me a lot. Now, we talk about role-playing a lot on the show and talked about GNS theory and, and all these things. And I asked my wife, does you want to come to Concrete Cow? Because she's into gaming as well. She's been once. And she has a, an interesting model of role-playing. She said, why would I want to go? It's just a bunch of sweaty men sat on hard chairs shouting at each other. <laughs> <laughs> that is... There's a big model for you, Scott. Yeah. Um, those chairs I, are pretty hard, to be fair. They are. I, 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 and those men are pretty sweaty. I do find it difficult to defend myself on this front. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't really have anything to say to that. I was like, oh, no, okay, yeah, right. 
To be fair, there were some sweaty women there as well. Well, that evens the that evens it up. Yeah, gender equality. <laughs> And now, the Lovecraftian word of the week. This week, our word is myriad. It's an adjective. One, constituting a very large, indefinite number. Innumerable. Two, composed of numerous, diverse elements or facets. Can also be used as a noun. One. A large, indefinite number. Sounds familiar. Two. In an archaic term. Ten thousand. I think perhaps I've not been always using this word correctly, so I've always tended to say a myriad of something, but it can just be myriad the thing itself. You don't uh, have both to have of them are in between. Both of them are correct, yeah. right? But I didn't really realise the uh, the second one. In fact, uh, Lovecraft went one stage further and started using myriads as an adjective as well. Well, that's Lovecraft. Yeah. <laughs> this does seem to be a very Lovecraftian way of just saying a lot. We've mentioned this before, how Lovecraft did like his poetic words, his archaic words, to convey relatively mundane things and how this added to the richness of his language. And I think this is a prime example. Uh, Particularly, he seemed to really like using it as a noun, which is something we don't see that much these days. I think mostly when you encounter the word myriad these days, it's an adjective. I don't think I've, I've heard people talking about a myriad for a while. I mean, I might be wrong. It seems to have a slightly negative connotation when you talk about a myriad of things. Like like being overwhelming? Yeah, a bit overwhelming. I don't think of a myriad of good things. I don't know, maybe that's just my conception of it. Maybe I'm wrong in that. Well, um, that's that's because you see everything in the world as negative, Paul. Oh, right. Yes, of course. (laughs) There are not 10,000 good things in the world. (laughs) Well, it gets a score of 23, that magic number, on the Lovecraftometer. In his main fiction, as Myriad, or indeed, as Scott said, Myriads. Well, let's take a look at the way Lovecraft used the word Myriad in his work. From the horror at Red Hook. Malone thinks these detectives show a sadly limited perspective in their lack of wonder at the myriad unexplainable details and the suggestive obscurity of the whole case though he is just as critical of the newspapers, which saw only a morbid sensation and gloated over a minor sadist cult, which they might have proclaimed a horror from the universe's very heart. And from the dream quest of unknown Kadath. They would leap seven strong at the throat of an almost human, or the pink tentacled snout of a toad thing, and drag it down savagely to the fungus plain, where myriads of their fellows would surge over it and into it with the frenzied claws and teeth of divine battle fury. And finally, from the shadow out of time. Its tough, cellulose pages seemed unaffected by the myriad cycles of time they had lived through, and I studied the queerly pigmented, brush-drawn letters of the text, symbols utterly unlike either the usual curved hieroglyphs or any alphabet known to human scholarship, with a haunting, half-aroused memory. And now on to our main topic, Lovecraft and cats. Lovecraft 
was famous for a lot of things, but one of the things he, he was particularly known for outside of his writing was the fact that he genuinely loved cats. He wrote about them in his correspondence, he wrote essays, he had many cats as pets, and it did seem to be one of his defining characteristics. His ex-wife, Sonia Green, stated, I think he loved his feline brothers more than he did humanity. In fact, I may state this without apology. And this love of cats found its way into his fiction all over the place, as we will explore. Obviously, from there, it crept into the larger mythos and into the Call of Cthulhu role-playing game, and suddenly there are cats everywhere. Have you seen the internet? <laughs> <laughs> Let's take a look at a few highlights of cats in Lovecraft stories. I think the definitive Lovecraft cat story is probably The Cats of Ulthar, which was the, the first one that he wrote which significantly revolved around cats. It's set in the dreamlands, this small little village called Ulthar, and it focuses on this rather mean couple who, unlike everyone else in the town, doesn't like cats very much. In fact, doesn't like them enough that they occasionally kill them. And the cats grow tired of this. And bad things happen to the couple. Indeed, it's pretty much summed up in uh, the one, probably the most famous line from the story. It is said that in Ulthar, which lies beyond the river Sky, no man may kill a cat. That was from 1920. And then in 1923, we have the rats in the walls. The narrator's cat plays a significant role in this story. I saw my old black cat dart past me like a winged Egyptian god, straight into the illimitable gulf of the unknown. And yeah, this cat crops up all the way through the story, reacting to the weird noises that are going on, basically almost acting like an additional investigator. Shame we, about the name. Yeah, yeah, we, we did cover this story in earlier episodes and go back there. But yes, yeah, the cat does have a rather unfortunate name. Well, let's just say a racist name. Yes. And Lovecraft himself gave his own cat a racist name. So just be prepared for that when you read the story. Moving on to 1926 and branching out into poetry, uh, Lovecraft's poem, originally named The Cats, provides a less cuddly depiction of them. Legions of cats from alleys nocturnal, howling and lean in the glare of the moon, screaming the future with mouthlings infernal, yelling the burden of Pluto's red rune. And then we move to 1927... And the dream quest of unknown Kadath, as uh, was quoted in the word of the week. We see the cats of Ulthar return, devouring a pack of zoogs, those strange dreamland creatures that were pursuing Randolph Carter. The zoogs seem to suffer quite badly at the hands of the cats, but they seem to be malevolent, nasty little things, so we don't feel too bad for them. Oh, Yes, after the cats deal with the zoogs, Lovecraft says... Some of them stole off to those cryptical realms which are known only to cats, and which villagers say are on the moon's dark side, whither the cats leap from tall housetops. So here we, we see Lovecraft really imbuing the cats with some kind of mystical, otherworldly knowledge. He talks about the fact that these cats can leap from rooftops up to the moon itself, where they live. Mm. And, you know, this is some wonderful dream logic and a great sort of fantasy imagery. Yes, an enchanting image. Yeah, definitely. Mm. 
it also borrows a lot from some of Dunsany's stories as well, because uh, cats were connected with the land of dreams in um, in Dunsany's work that followed on from A Dreamer's Tales and some of the standalone stories that appeared in subsequent collections, where there was a witch who kind of resided in the half land between the land of dreams and the land of the waking, and she had a cat. Mm-hmm. Um, the cat talked, um, was quite a mocking son of a bitch as well. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, well, had sim- similar kind of things that it could cross between waking and dreams. It's interesting you say that. I mean, this might be getting ahead of ourselves slightly, but it's a long time since I've read The Dream Quest of Unknown Kadath, but I did flick through all the parts to do with cats before you know this episode. And I couldn't really find any references in Lovecraft about cats moving between dreams in the waking world. We have the cats of Ulthar and, and the various other cats we encounter in, in The Dream Quest of Unknown Kadath who exist in the land of dreams. We have cats in the waking world, but they don't seem to be the same cats. It could be that the cats in in the dreamlands are the dreams of Mm. Earth's cats, but I don't think it's ever stated, and someone may correct me on this, but I don't think it's ever stated that the cats move between the two worlds. It'd be nice if they did, and well, especially you could certainly rationalise the fact it was the cat dreaming, because given the number of cats I've known, the amount they sleep, certainly they could have a dream persona. You're envious, aren't you, Matt? <laughs> God, yeah. I think Garfield is my hero. <laughs> the amount of sleep he gets to Gav. Yeah, I mean, cats, as they get older, do spend a lot of their time sleeping. But we also get a disproportionate view of how much time they sleep because they're crepuscular animals. They're most active t- at either uh, dawn or, or sunset, which means that we tend to see them sleeping through the daytime. They're not exactly nocturnal, though they can be a bit more so when they're young. I'll screw sundown and sun up and just, I'd, I'd sleep through the day and just work all night. Back to my uni days then. When Carter finds himself in trouble again, he calls upon the feline aid to save him from the dreaded moon beasts. Again, they're cute and cuddly and misunderstood. I don't know why they should have cats mm. set upon them. Well, they, they had cats set upon them because they were trying to eat Randolph Carter, which is generally frowned upon. So they were hungry. What's the worst that could happen? You just wake up? Well, the worst that can happen <laughs> is you get eaten by lots of cats in return. As we'll find out. How much of the speech of cats was known to Randolph Carter? And in this far, terrible place, he uttered the cry that was suitable. But that he need not have done, for even as his lips opened, he heard the chorus wax and draw nearer, and saw swift shadows against the stars as small, graceful shapes leapt from hill to hill in gathering legions. The call of the clan had been given, and before the foul procession had time even to be frightened, a cloud of smothering fur and a phalanx of murderous claws were tidily and tempestuously upon it. And there's a little bit at the beginning of that which I find quite interesting, which we we see elaborated upon later in the story, which is the fact that Carter actually knows the language of cats, that cats are intelligent enough that they have language that you can discourse with them. Again, this seems to be something that is exclusive to the dreamlands, but there's no reason why we can't play with that in our Call of Cthulhu games. But when Carter repeated the passwords and introductions furnished him by the old Cat General of Ulthar, the furry patriarch became very cordial and communicative, and told much of the secret lore known to cats on the seaward slopes of Uthnagai. So cats even had their own lore, they had their own history, their own legends. So in the dreamlands at least, they're a truly intelligent race. And Carter also encounters the one foe which Earth's cats fear, 
the very large and peculiar cats from Saturn. Yeah, these are never actually described in The Dream Quest of Unknown Kadath. But of course, that hasn't stopped Call of Cthulhu writers playing with them. And they're from Saturn. They are, yes. And they're big and scary. Well, there's, a, there's a door to Saturn, so why couldn't the cats come through it? I just pictured them like the Disney film, The Cat from Outer Space. I, I am unfamiliar with this work. Why am I not surprised? It's a Disney film and he hasn't Saw it seen when it, it came out. There you go. Has <laughs> a great necklace. Now, Lovecraft liked cats. Indeed, he loved cats. So an absence of cats is a good warning that you're in a bad place on Earth or indeed in the dreamlands. So where there are no cats, such as perhaps getting too close to Lang, then yeah, there won't be cats there. And likewise, such macabre and unfriendly places that we find in the colour out of space and the shadow of Rinsmouth. The cats have got more sense than to hang around those unsavoury places. Moving beyond his fiction, Lovecraft wrote an essay, which was, I, I think, originally meant uh, to be a speech that was given at the Blue Pencil Club. But he didn't actually give it as a speech. He just wrote this rather wry and extensive essay called Cats and Dogs, which August Ehrlich, when he reprinted it later, retitled it as something about cats. And it's an odd piece. Reading some of the, the biographical information about Lovecraft, particularly Joshi's biography, Joshi absolutely loves this piece and considers it to be the finest bit of non-fiction that Lovecraft wrote. Personally, I find it a little overblown. It's classic Lovecraftian wordiness, but, but very self-aware. I mean, he's playing with language, he's playing with his over-the-top vocabulary. And using it to present this argument that cat lovers are inherently superior to dog lovers because cats are the more refined, intelligent creatures. They're the aristocracy of animals. And that uh, dogs are mindless followers. And that to love a dog is to share dog-like characteristics. Of course, this also being Lovecraft, the original draft of this acts very much as an apology for fascism, but let's gloss over that. I mean, happily, R.H. Barlow, when he edited it, removed some of the more fascistic elements of this. Yeah, Lovecraft uses the two words here, you know, it's Lovecraft, so we get allorophily and kinophily, meaning the love of cats and the love of dogs. Or, if you Google it, kinophily... Also, the sexual arousal brought on by contracting rabies. Right. In which case, that definitely means that cat lovers are superior. Yeah. Rabid lover. I'll just run that by you again. The sexual you know, gratification derived from contracting rabies. Yeah. Um, that is... Well, I, we'll be moving, I think, on to toxoplasmosis later in this, so cat lovers don't get out of this completely. Uh, okay. But, uh, yeah. But I, uh, you know, just as a, as a check, that is kind of odd, right? So, so d d does this mean that, that Old Yellow was an early form of furry porn? Is it Rule 34? If you can think of it, it's out there on the net. Mm. Yeah. But there, there are some remarkable quotes from this essay. One of my favourites is... The cat is not for the brisk, self-important little worker with a mission, but for the enlightened, dreaming poet who knows that the world contains nothing really worth doing. Moving on, though, Lovecraft has to say, One does not, in fact, own a cat as one does a dog. One entertains a cat. It is a guest, not a servant. Or as I've heard also, that uh, you do not own the cat, the cat owns you. 
We'll come to that in a game later. <laughs> and what fully civilised soul but would eagerly serve as High Priest of Bast? Now, interestingly, this is, I think, about the only time Bast is mentioned in Lovecraft's work. We'll come back to this when we talk about the gaming aspects. Bast is a big part of Call of Cthulhu, and you know, until I was doing the research for this episode, I really had it in mind that Bast must have appeared in Lovecraft's fiction somewhere. But no, I mean, there's a passing mention somewhere to Babastis in one of his stories, but that's about it. And when I say Babastis, I mean the place. Again, looking at non-fiction, cats featured regularly in Lovecraft's letters, and S.G. Joshi mentions that Lovecraft's correspondence with Marion F. Bonner. In the course of this correspondence, Lovecraft revealed his fondness for cats, and he filled the margins of his letters with the most delightful drawings of cats gambling with each other, or playing with balls of yarn or other activities so heartwarmingly written about in his old essay, Cats and Dogs. And I still can't get the image of cats sitting around a table playing Texas Hold'em. Yeah, I thought that was dogs that were pictured playing poker. Yeah. Not mm. in Lovecraft's version. Well, actually, yeah. I, I, I'm, I'm sure Louis Wayne must have done a picture along those lines. And we'll, we'll explain who he is in a few minutes. <laughs> now, Bast, as a mythos deity, as we'll find in Call of Cthulhu, the Bast features may seem to owe more to Robert Bloch than Lovecraft. Bloch's first mention runs thus. From the grinning ghoul, the grotesque black rites of mystic Luve Carafe, the priest of cryptic Bast. You know, these black rites are a mythos tome that he created that he mentions in a few of his stories. And I just like the idea that there was this really hideous mythos tome that was devoted to Bast. And it sort of seems weird that Bast would be presented in such a way that her priest would be a hideous giver of, of unclean knowledge. But that's until you start seeing the way that Bloch presents Bast in his stories. The key story in all this is a piece called The Brood of Bubastis. There was a sect of Egypt which believed literally in their gods, believed that Anubis, Bast and Set could assume human form. That is to say that the cat goddess could be brought to life. And there were wise men in those days, science and biology were not unknown, it is the belief of savants that the priests of Bass were mating animals and humans in an attempt to create a hybrid. A hybrid with the attributes of their deity. Yeah, the HP Lovecraft Literary Podcast have covered this, uh, this story. And as they point out, it says science and biology were not unknown. But mating animals and humans? That's not really science. Is it? No, it's more of a Let's hobby. Let's hope not. Yeah, it's a hobby, maybe for some. A horror for others. <laughs> but you ain't going to make a cat-headed man. I hear a fellow called Moreau has been working on this for some time. <laughs> yeah. But the horror goes deeper than that, in that I mean, Bloch's version of Bast probably owes as much in its origins to Pickman's model as to Egyptian's mythology. Uh, she's definitely not the Bast that's described in the Call of Cthulhu role-playing game. And again from you know, the brood of Bubastis, confusingly, Bloch uses Bubastis as the name of the god in this, not as the name of the city that was devoted to her. And he says... Bubastis was, I told you, a ghoul goddess. The priests and worshippers emulated her. And we do see this, that when she is depicted in the story, she is this flesh-eating undead monstrosity. And the other little snippet that the story offers us 
is that the cult of Bast was driven out of Egypt in ancient times and found a new home. And of course, where better, where would you expect the cult of Bast to be set up than Cornwall? Are you saying where would you find people trying to mate with animals other than Cornwall, Scott? Is that the kind of level you're sinking to? I, I, Robert Block said it. I didn't. Okay. We should have travelled a little bit further up the motorway. Could have gone to Slough or Luton. <laughs> Where they've successfully done it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> Now we look at Cats in Call of Cthulhu. Well, I guess it's hard to think of Cats in Call of Cthulhu without thinking of Bast, right? The Egyptian goddess is one of the few gods in Call of Cthulhu not to be malign. Indeed, kind of reminds me, in the way I've seen her portrayed, somewhat of Nodens. Yeah, with perhaps a bit more of an edge. I mean, Nodens seems to be sort of mystic and weird and a bit detached, but ultimately benevolent. Bast, on the other hand, she treats you as well as you treat her. And she's like a cat in that respect. You know, if you treat a cat with love and affection, then you will get love and affection back from it. If you ignore it, it'll ignore you. If you mistreat it, you will probably end up bloodied. In Call of Cthulhu, she is described as... Bast, the cat goddess, is represented as a cat or as a woman with a cat's head. In ancient Egypt, she was often shown with a sistrum in her right hand, an aegis surmounted with a lion's head in her left hand, and a small bag slung over her left arm. She's also called Bastet or Ubasti. Bast may have dominion only over Earth and its dreamlands, for the cats of Saturn in the dreamlands are inimical to Earth's cats. Her cult seems not to have survived among humans except in the dreamlands, but she may not care. All cats worship her in their savage hearts. Like the other gods, Bast rarely takes action. If a person is remarkably cruel to cats, she may act through her feline minions. If they cannot solve the difficulty, she may come personally. So Bast and cats are generally presented as neutral or even potential allies in Call of Cthulhu. Of course, those who harm cats, or their goddess, can expect to suffer horrible fates. And we see this in one of the side quests in Masks of Nialathotep. Yeah. Uh, without going into spoilers, there, there's one of the side quests in there that does involve someone who has got on the wrong side of Bast. And you get to see her slightly creepier side, but... Hey, I mean, it's, it's, it's not really balls-to-the-wall horror the way that Yoga Block betrayed her. I remember playing that particular subplot and just remarking at the end of every session, FUCKING CATS! <laughs> <laughs> but play a tip, if you meet a cat, be nice to it. Can't go wrong. Yes, and, you can. Well. <laughs> you can frequently. <laughs> and the same general advice uh, applies to the chapter I wrote for The Curse of Nineveh, uh, titled Catland, sometimes called Pussydom, which uh, involves not exactly a cult of Bast, but... A little outbreak of feline worship in the suburbs of London. The Dreamland Supplement presents write-ups for ordinary cats as well as cats from Saturn and cats from Uranus. Cats from Saturn aren't described in the Dream Crest of Unknown Kadath, but the Dreamland's book describes them as almost abstract, formed of arabesques and filigrees in many bright hues. Now, I mentioned a name in passing earlier, Louis Wayne. 
Louis Wayne is a, a little obsession of mine. He was an artist in Victorian times primarily, in the, the early 20th century, though he'd fallen on hard times by then. Uh, he was responsible very much for popularising and making cats respectable as pets in Victorian England. But he also depicted cats in very cartoony ways. In a lot of ways, he, he set a lot of the templates for what people like Walt Disney would pick up in the 20th century with these rather cartoony anthropomorphic cats. But as he went into the 20th century, he developed some kind of psychotic illness, and there are all sorts of theories as to what was the cause for this. And his work changed around this time. And a lot of his representations of cats uh, from his later life they become these abstract figures made of of light and bright colours and fire, sometimes arresting, almost frightening images. I think the depiction of the cats from Saturn in the Dreamlands book owes everything to those Louis Wayne pictures. And you mentioned the Dreamlands book, and there are these leathery six-legged creatures with whip-like tails. Yeah, the cats from Uranus, which don't actually appear in Lovecraft's fiction. Uh, they, these do seem to be Sandy's invention. And now we have a look at cats in other Cthulhu RPGs. Yes, <laughs> there is more than one. Who would have thought it? <laughs> anyway, so there is Cthulhu. Nice title from 60 Stone Press came out a few years back it's a call of cthulhu alternative setting where feline sleuths investigate the horrors of the cthulhu mythos looking through the pdf it is call of cthulhu just with cats as characters so you've got the uh, the cat character sheet with sentience points in place of sanity and then ostensibly it kind of looks like an investigator sheet but there are some curious things on it Quite a lot of information about different breeds with pros and cons, advantages and disadvantages. There's a whole bunch of stuff about tricks. And there's on the back sheet where you might have backstory, there's reference to main can opener. Main can opener, <laughs> I thought. What's this? And then other friendly can openers, I think. Ah, like, oh, yeah. we're the can the, openers, the right? People who open cans for them. Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> so there's no concept of owners. It's just like main can opener. And that's kind of your chief food presenter. That's yes. probably how my cat Ginny thinks of me. <laughs> Actually, no, that would be my wife would be the main can opener, I think. I'd be somewhere <laughs> relegated down the list, probably. But yeah, I mean, it looks like quite a fun game. It looks, you know, quite well thought out. Certainly, I think there's a, a comedic element to it, perhaps in, you know, in the, in the presentation in the book. But whether that would come across in the game, I'm not sure. But yeah, I'd be up for giving it a go. And because it isn't enough for there to be one game about playing cats combating the Cthulhu mythos, there is also Call of Cthulhu from Joel Sparks, where you're playing the cat heroes who must stop the chaos gods of other animals from conquering the world, and the humans will never know. I must admit, I've never played this. I've just really looked at the website, and um, it looks like a very pretty game, and they've really gone to town with the production designs, but I have no idea what it plays like. It comes in two books, if I remember. Three, I just remember seeing different covers for it. Mm. There's also Cat by John Wick. Uh, not technically a Lovecraftian game, but can certainly be run as one. And the PCs are cats uh, that can move in and out of human dreams, protecting the people they love from the monsters that live in both worlds. 
apparently owes something to the general segment of Stephen King's Cat's Eye, where a cat protects a little girl, I think Drew Barrymore, I think, was in there, uh, from a troll that wants to steal her breath. And yeah, I did run a few one-shots of this many years ago, and yeah, I mean, it's a very light, very straightforward game. The Lovecraftian aspect of it comes from the fact that you are drifting in and out of dreams as cats. And and so you can certainly play it as a very Lovecraftian game. And I, I, I sort of did that a little bit, and I, I had the player characters as uh, cats in Bedlam Asylum, basically you know, living in the grounds and drifting in and out of the dreams of Louis Wayne. And yeah, that, that was quite fun. Now let's consider, how can we use cats in our games? Well, as we said, cats and the associated entities in Call of Cthulhu, but cats in general, are pretty good reflections of the way they're treated. I think this makes them interesting things to throw into games. If you want their help, then sure, and you can be like Randolph Carter and have you know an entire life where you've been kind to every little cat that you've come across and they inherently like you and you speak their language in dreams. And, you know, in which case, they become incredibly powerful allies, leaping down like this great, you know, furry wave of death from the, from the moon, ready to devour anything that might do you harm. Um, but on the other hand, it could be interesting to sort of have someone with a more neutral association with cats suddenly in a position where they want to you know have to try to ally themselves and it's sort of right what can i do to ingratiate them what do cats want and you know finding a way of bonding with the cat quickly or particularly a large group of cats i can see being challenging in all sorts of interesting ways i mean it seems to me if you're going to use cats in your games there's a sliding scale of how you use them so up at the the high end i would say you're going to have talking cats cats that can jump off a rooftop onto the moon as we see in lovecraft stories at the lower end i think you could have helpful cats it's a bit ambiguous how clever they are but you befriend them they can perhaps lead you places so you could have it from a fairly subtle effect to a very major strange fiction type one with talking cats and you could have fun using cats as antagonists as well. I and mean, there's plenty of, of examples of this in weird fiction and horror films. I mean, for example, there was a pretty shitty British horror film from the 1960s called the, I think it was 60s, maybe early 70s, uh, with uh, Peter Cushing called The Uncanny, basically about a sinister conspiracy of cats trying to take over the world. Yeah, also Bram Stoker's The Squaw, in which uh, a cat takes revenge upon a human being who killed her kitten in a fairly horrible way. There's Edgar Allan Poe's The Black Cat, Alton and Blackwood's Ancient Sorceries. You know, there's, there's all sorts of stuff you could just draw upon and turn cats into creatures of nightmare. So we've got the idea of Bast, this Egyptian goddess, god of cats. How would that manifest today if we had some modern day cult of bast seeing the internet as it is it seems to have been a great preponderance of, of cats more so than pretty much any other animal on the internet so there would be plenty of draw for some sort of cat cult i think yeah i it'd be interesting to think of an internet-based one because i mean, not every cat video that you see on the internet is entirely kind to the cat so i mean for example you had that meme that was going around last year or a year before where people would put cucumbers on the ground behind cats because and the cats would end up just jumping out of their skins because oh, they look like yeah. snakes i've seen this that, that, yeah. i just never understood it why the hell do they dislike cucumbers so be much because they look like snakes is that it yeah. hold on hold on hold on hold on 
says the man who spent about five minutes pulling every fragment of cucumber out of his <laughs> Turkish meal the other night. Why do they hate cucumbers so much? How can you ask this, Because they're fucking vile, that's why. That's well, where's your answer? <laughs> they don't like cucumber either. No, I, I, yeah, but I don't go, ah, at the sight of one. I well, just kind of go, ugh. It looked pretty close to me. <laughs> but, yeah, I mean... You could almost imagine Cult of Bass trying to track down online miscreants who have been creating... There's a whole subreddit called Startled Cats, which is basically people who have created GIFs and, and videos out of cats being startled by things. And most of the time, you know, it's, it's like they walk around a corner, bump into another cat and so on. Uh, but you know, sometimes they have set up some fairly unpleasant things for the cats to try to make them jump. Oh, right. Okay. I can just almost imagine this feline vengeance cult trying to track down people who have you've created such videos well or bast comes and, and wrecks vengeance upon them yeah um yes. herself or her, sends her minions to do so so if i ever come up against a cat god the thing i need to do is whip a cucumber out of my pocket <laughs> is that a cucumber any- anyway no <laughs> i'd also like to think of priests or priestesses of bast in terms of um have either of you seen either of the film versions of cat people no it was originally made in the 1940s, maybe early 50s. A really creepy black and white film, you know, one of the, the Val Luton Jacques Tournay uh, collaborations. Basically about a, a young woman who operates under a curse and every now and then she turns into a black panther. She's you know, sort of partially embraced this and got a very feline essence to her. Um, quite predatory in a sexual way. And this is dialled up to 11 in, in the 1970s ver- or early 80s version of it uh, with Natasha Kinsky, where they you know, sort of really bring out the sexual elements of it. And I think you know, looking at those characters as inspirations for Priests of Bast could open things up in all sorts of you know, creepy and interesting directions. And we have, obviously, we have werewolves in games. They're quite a popular thing. What about people that change into cats? With magic, whether it be lycanthropy or some sort of magic spell that people use to transform themselves into a cat. For myself, I feel the danger here that is changing into a cat somehow feels a bit twee. But I don't think it has to be. There's a whole book on that, you know, in Werewolf. One of, the cha- one of the changeling breeds is the Bastet. You turn into cats. Oh, well, there you go. If you put a fairly gritty tone on it, you can change into a small feline that can innocently wander into people's houses, be witness to all sorts of things. There's some potential there for some quite gory things, really. Well, and then what? you turn into a tiger and shit gets real. Well, maybe, mm. but I'm just thinking as as the cat as a witness to uh, to events. A cat can't really do that much if they're just a you know a house cat. From the werecat point of view as well, there was a fantastic horror novel written back in the 50s, I think, uh, by J.M. Williamson called Darker Than You Think. If you ever planned on a campaign that involved werecat worshippers of Bast, that book would be an absolute goldmine. We also mentioned another name earlier, Bubastis, which is this ancient Egyptian city. The people there worshipped Bast. And they held annual festivals in her honour. Obviously, this is a, a city that is ruins now. But it did get me wondering what kind of community might crop up in you know, the 20th century or the modern day that would worship cats. And I was picturing you know, almost like you know, hippie communes and so on, where you, know, you have you know, just cats crawling everywhere and people living a fairly laid-back lifestyle. 
And, you know, it all seems very pleasant and benign and lots of cute furry animals. But at the same time, again, is that whole idea of as long as you're on the right side of all this, you're fine. But, you know, as uh, you, know, you get into that, you know, cats of all thar situation where, you know, inadvertently, perhaps you do something bad to one of the cats and suddenly you are in the worst place on Earth. Another term that we touched upon, toxoplasmosis, which is caused by the parasitic protozoan Toxoplasma gondii. There's a mouthful to try and say when you're drunk. <laughs> yes. Um, is the idea of a brain parasite that's spread by cats that makes us better disposed towards them. Well, that's already freaky enough. But what comes to my mind when thinking of something like that is role reversal. Um, think of a pastiche or homage to something like Planet of the Apes where suddenly you've got the cat sat upon the throne on their big cuddly cushion, looked after by all their human minions. And if you walked into somewhere, a bit like your hippie commune, but rather than the cats are all over the humans, it's the humans are dolting to and uh, worshipping and idolising the cats and could be turned was en masse, a bit like the scene in Dream Quest where you have the horde of cats descend upon the enemy. No, the cats just send their human minions to descend upon those that they don't like. <laughs> Running on all fours and trying to meow with their pitiful human voices. Mm -hmm. Toxoplasmosis is, is a weird and nasty disease. Most of the time it doesn't do anything particularly horrible to people unless you're pregnant or unless you have a compromised immune system. But it's the idea that there is this incredibly common brain parasite that's in cat faeces, and in dog faeces as well, but it's primarily cats that seem to spread it, that causes behavioural changes. I mean, that strikes me as being pretty fucking Lovecraftian. There's all sorts of debate about what kinds of effects it has on people. But I, if you look at the effects that it has on animals, it's the idea that mice, for example, if they get toxoplasmosis, end up becoming fearless. They, they're no longer afraid of the smell of cat urine. They're no longer afraid of the presence of cats. And it's like this parasite has programmed their brains to get eaten. So that, you know, the cats will then eat the infected brains, end up becoming infected themselves, and then spread it around further with their faeces. Even moving aside from the idea of, of cats, the idea of this brain parasite that suddenly makes you the perfect prey, you can just sort of imagine the Mego perhaps creating something like this, spreading it out there in, in tainted meat or something like that into you know, the human food supply, mm. and making people docile, vulnerable, easy to manipulate, uh, easy to hunt. Well, Sorry, this is a change how? <laughs> So those cats from Uranus are only one step away from, from Yogov, so they could have contracted it, brought it onto Saturn, Saturn brought it back to the moon, and from the moon it's just a hop, skip and a jump to us. So basically what you're saying is that if you see any large, luminous, uh, filigreed, predatory-looking cats, you should keep away from their shit. Or whip out a cucumber. We touched briefly upon Bast and the idea that the version of Bast that is presented in, in the mythos fiction, you know, particularly that of Robert Bloch, is a very different one. Can you see any circumstances or any interesting ways in which you could use this sort of more nightmarish, um, you know, animal-human ghoul hybrid version of Bast? I mean, the, the idea for me, certainly, is the fact that, you know, Bast is effectively a ghoul means that, you know, you could sort of play around with, with ghoul society there. I mean, perhaps even, you know, sort of these strange collaborations between ghouls and cats. Ghouls, pet cats. yeah. These you know, sort of strange, manky little cats that come out and perhaps lure people into ghoul warrens. 
nice tasty little treats that they can all share and then get taken into old folks homes for petting sessions <laughs> and again perhaps the ghoulish version of toxoplasmosis may gives people morbid impulses the desire to go off and explore cemeteries and stuff like that and they never come back thank you thank you We have once again come to that part in the episode where we thank those lovely people who have given us money, who have given us a rather shocking amount of money. And we are grateful to each and every one of you. We would like to take this opportunity to thank you. And we would like to thank a couple of new people. Indeed. Yes, at the $5 level, and this means singing, we start with William Adcock. So thank you, William. Indeed. Thank you very much, William. Yes, thank you, Bill. And I think it's only fair, having, having seen a lot of the stuff that Bill posts on, on uh, Facebook, that we co-dedicate this to his cat, Atticus. And our next victim at the $5 level is, I'm hoping I'm going to pronounce this right, Mikhail Dahl. Yeah, I've, I've known Mikhail for a while. He answers quite happily to Michael, but uh, I, I think it's nice to actually try to pronounce his name right for a change. But yes, yeah, uh, Mikhail's been uh, one of the playtesters of a poison tree for, oh gosh, the last three years now. <laughs> Thank you for the backing and thank you for your patience with what has turned into a momentous playtest campaign. Yes, thank you very much, Mikhail. Mikhail. On social media, over on iTunes, we have a new review. It's from Walter V, who we sang to in the last episode. And he says, Enjoyable for GMs, players, and the casually interested. Very good podcast by three very knowledgeable hosts in their fields. I.e. horror, role-playing games, writing scenarios. Very enjoyable podcast, good for tips on running games and general horror trivia. As an added bonus, they keep up with all Cthulhu-related Kickstarters for you. Especially the plushy ones are nice. Oh, you, you were doing so well up to that point, Walter. You were doing so well. Oh, we, I like but, you. But, but thank you. We appreciate the sentiment. Well, I, 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 think, I think the others appreciate the sentiment, and I appreciate nine-tenths of it. <laughs> you know the plush, uh, CS for Cthulhu plush pillow Kickstarter has uh, started shipping rewards. Has it now, man? Yeah. I, are the pillows big enough to smother someone with? The extra large blanket is stuffs the pillow might, but... Excellent. Okay, I can see a saving grace here. Uh-oh. Wait a minute, there's an extra large blanket that what? Yeah, the, the, the Kickstarter was for a pillow that's stuffed with an extra large blanket, a bit like the right. baby blanket they did for the last one with the rainbow Cthulhu plush, but now they've decided to do a bigger blanket that could cover a double bed. Okay. For fuck's sake. Yay! 
<laughs> anyway, thank you very much, Wouter, even if you have just led to that moment of deep existential horror. Um, <laughs> and uh, if, if anyone else feels moved to write any iTunes reviews, we would be absolutely delighted. I mean, not only are they lovely things to hear, to read out on the podcast, but also apparently they help an awful lot with the ranking of the podcast and help us get the word out there to other vulnerable minds. And over on our Google Plus community, John Summerow made a comment about our recent inspiration and development episode. He says, It was very interesting to hear the development story of Blackwater Creek. That scenario was the first one I ever played, and it was the game that inspired me to get the core rulebook and start keepering the law myself. Top notch! Well, fantastic. Hey. Thank you. And, um, yeah, I'm, I'm glad Blackwater Creek sold you on the game that much. I mean, that's great to hear. Well, it's doing its job. It's in the Keeper's screen. So, uh, yeah, that's good to hear that getting so much love. Also over on G+, John Holmes writes, Who remembers the Watchers of Walberswick from an early White Dwarf magazine? It was set in the village just six miles from Dunwich on the Suffolk coast. I've stayed in both places and should maybe return to run the scenario with an amaranthine desire over a holiday weekend. Yeah, that'd be nice. Running it, uh, running at the location. Just really hope there ain't a storm that comes in that night. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I, I remember a lot of the old White Dwarf uh, Call of Cthulhu scenarios fondly. But that one, I don't remember. I remember the title. I don't think I've ever played it. Um, but there were, you, as you say, there were a lot of good uh, scenarios in the early White Dwarfs for Call of Cthulhu, and I think that really yeah. spread the word about Call of Cthulhu to a, a wider audience. Yeah, if I remember correctly, a lot of them were written by Marcus Rowland, mm. uh, who was fantastic at this kind of stuff. Well, still is. I mean, he's still around, but um, I think it's a long time since he last wrote any Call of Cthulhu material. They recently played one of his on um, Into the Darkness, uh, Draw the Blinds on Yesterday. Oh, nice. Yeah, which was, that was a weird scenario. Good, uh, not weird in a bad way, weird weird in a good way. That was, yeah, stuff that I hadn't really seen done in scenarios for a while. Yeah. Nice. And also on G+, Tor Nielsen says, I thought the songs of gratitude were particularly good this week. Good. Mm, good. Uh, that's, that's not an adjective we hear applied an awful lot to our singing, but, but thank you. I wonder if that means the gate to the Cacoferno is about to open for me. A land of music beyond melody, chats beyond lyricism, and gutters clogged with broken spoons. <laughs> we'll sing you songs you can't unhear. <laughs> we have such songs to sing to you. <laughs> I'm just weird that someone calls it singing. Yeah, well, thank you very much, Tor, and everybody else. And if you want to check out our social media, you'll find links to it on our shiny new website which you'll find at blasphemoustomes.com then just to wrap things up one final question would you ever use a cat as a player character in call of cthulhu matt no <laughs> <laughs> wrapped up <laughs> in one word I, I would extend that would I use cat or use animals as player characters in role playing games no werewolf no I, I oh, my least make my least favourite of the world favorite. of darkness games because oh. of it, the fact you play a, an animal that basically sniffs its own ball uh, arse and what, licks its own balls for fun I, I just really don't like the idea of anthropomorphised animal characters in games that just sounds like jealousy to me yeah <laughs> yeah yeah. <laughs> yeah you're kind of the antithesis of our friend Robin 
<laughs> yes, yeah, I'm just thinking that. Yeah, he's he is at one end of the scale. I'm very vehemently at the other. Most of his posts on on Facebook are of him dressed up as an animal. <laughs> so yeah, okay. Anyway, what about you, Scott? Would you would you entertain the idea of having player characters primarily as cats in the well, scenario? I mean, I have run Cat the role playing game before and had great fun with that. I, as far as doing it in Call of Cthulhu, maybe. I remember a scenario that I played at a UK convention all donkeys years ago. I think um, Wim from the Cult of Keepers ran it. It was a dreamland scenario. The player characters were all humans, but when they went over into the dreamlands, for some reason they manifested as cats as part of some curse. And that actually worked quite well. You know, they were on their quest to basically regain their humanity in the waking world. And I thought that was, yeah, really quite an effective scenario. So, yeah, I mean, something like that might appeal. I'm finding myself more drawn to the Robert Block description of Bast at the moment. And, and you're having perhaps, um, you know, some scenario where you've got player characters that are cats in the dreamlands dealing with this perverted, distorted uh, reflection of Bast, perhaps created by Nefrin Carr, this ghoulish monstrosity. I mean, that might be quite a an interesting conflict i mean you know, do you accept this bast as your god or is it an abomination you know what do you do i think i think that could be quite a fun thing to do holy war amongst the cats yeah how about you paul i'm probably with matt <laughs> i probably wouldn't but that's because i think i come to it with the mind of somebody who's seen all these things on the internet of, of, of cats as doing funny things and uh, you know, the whole cat meme thing but actually, if you step back from that and think of other approaches to it and, and, and different tones of using them in the game, then, yeah, maybe I could entertain it. If, if the Either in the, the real world, classic Call of Cthulhu kind of game with a, a dark twist to it, or perhaps, not that I've run much Dreamlands, but perhaps you know in the Dreamlands where it seems much more fitting. Yeah, or even in the waking world, I'm suddenly thinking of a fun little game where you could all play the various familiars of Keziah Mason. Mm. Off doing foul things in colonial-era Arkham. I prefer to think Keziah Mason, you know, in the modern day, living on a back street in New York as the crazy cat lady. (laughs) Oh, yes. And you're all her familiars. Yeah, yes. He's been bullied by Brown Jenkin while you're awake. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, we'll get him one day. (laughs) Well, I think that wraps it up on Cats for this week. So uh, until next time, it's a meow from me. It's a meow from me. And a what the fuck from me. (laughs) (laughs) Hello. Blasphemoustomes.com (laughs) 